0: Part One, Chapter Four of Tolstoy on Shakespeare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Danielle Liebens. Tolstoy on Shakespeare: A Critical Essay on Shakespeare by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Vladimir Chertkov and Isabella Fivimayo. Part One, Chapter Four but it is not enough that shakespeare's characters are placed in tragic positions which are impossible do not flow from the course of events are inappropriate to time and space these personages besides this act in a way which is out of keeping with their definite character and is quite arbitrary it is generally asserted that in shakespeare's dramas the characters are specially well expressed that notwithstanding their vividness they are many-sided like those of living people That while exhibiting the characteristics of a given individual, they at the same time wear the features of man in general. It is usual to say that the delineation of character in Shakespeare is the height of perfection. This is asserted with such confidence and repeated by all as indisputable truth. But however much I endeavored to find confirmation of this in Shakespeare's dramas, I always found the opposite in reading any of shakespeare's dramas whatever i was from the very first instantly convinced that he was lacking in the most important if not the only means of portraying characters individuality of language i e the style of speech of every person being natural to his character this is absent from shakespeare all his characters speak not their own but always one and the same shakespearean pretentious and unnatural language in which not only they could not speak but in which no living man ever has spoken or does speak no living men could say or can say as lear says that he would divorce his wife in the grave should regan not receive him or that the heavens would crack with shouting or that the winds would burst or that the wind wishes to blow the land into the sea or that the curled waters wish to flood the shore as the gentleman describes the storm or that it is easier to bear one's grief and the soul leaps over many sufferings when grief finds fellowship or that lear has become childless while i am fatherless as edgar says or use similar unnatural expressions with which the speeches of all the characters in all shakespeare's dramas overflow again it is not enough that all the characters speak in a way which no living men ever did or could speak they all suffer from a common intemperance of language those who are in love who are preparing for death who are fighting who are dying all alike speak much and unexpectedly about subjects utterly inappropriate to the occasion being evidently guided rather by consonances and play of words than by thoughts they speak all alike Lear raves exactly as does Edgar when feigning madness. Both Kent and the fool speak alike. The words of one of the personages might be placed in the mouth of another, and by the character of the speech it would be impossible to distinguish who speaks. If there is a difference in the speech of Shakespeare's various characters, it lies merely in the different dialogues which are pronounced for these characters, again by Shakespeare and not by themselves. Thus, Shakespeare always speaks for kings in one and the same inflated, empty language. Also, in one and the same Shakespearean artificially sentimental language speak all the women who are intended to be poetic Juliet, Desdemona, Cordelia, Imogen, Marina. In the same way, also, it is Shakespeare alone who speaks for his villains—Richard, Edmund, Iago, Macbeth—expressing for them those vicious feelings which villains never express yet more similar are the speeches of the madmen with their horrible words and those of the fools with their mirthless puns so that in shakespeare there is no language of living individuals that language which in the drama is the chief means of setting forth character if gesticulation be also a means of expressing character as in ballets this is only a secondary means moreover if the characters speak at random and in a random way and all in one and the same diction as is the case in shakespeare's work then even the action of gesticulation is wasted. Therefore, whatever the blind panegyrists of Shakespeare may say, in Shakespeare there is no expression of character those personages who, in his dramas, stand out as characters, are characters borrowed by him from former works, which has served as the foundation of his dramas, and they are mostly depicted not by the dramatic method which consists in making each person speak with his own diction, but in the epic method of one person describing the features of another. The perfection with which Shakespeare expresses character is asserted chiefly on the ground of the characters of Lear, Cordelia, Othello, Desdemona, Falstaff, and Hamlet. But all these characters, as well as all the others, instead of belonging to Shakespeare, are taken by him from dramas, chronicles, and romances anterior to him. All these characters not only are not rendered more powerful by him, but in most cases they are weakened and spoilt. This is very striking in this drama of King Lear, L-E-A-R, which we are examining, taken by him from the drama King Lear, L-E-I-R, by an unknown author. The characters of this drama, that of King Lear, and especially of Cordelia, not only were not created by Shakespeare, but have been strikingly weakened and deprived of force by him as compared with their appearance in the older drama. In the older drama, Lear abdicates because, having become a widower, he thinks only of saving his soul. He asks his daughters as to their love for him, that by means of a certain device he has invented he may retain his favorite daughter on his island. The elder daughters are betrothed, while the youngest does not wish to contract a loveless union with any of the neighboring suitors whom Lear proposes to her, and he is afraid that she may marry some distant potentate. The device which he has invented, as he informs his courtier, Perilous, Shakespeare's Kent, is this, that when Cordelia tells him that she loves him more than anyone, or as much as her elder sisters do, he will tell her that she must, in proof of her love, marry the prince he will indicate on his island." All these motives for Lear's conduct are absent in Shakespeare's play. Then, when, according to the old drama, Lear asks his daughters about their love for him, Cordelia does not say, as Shakespeare has it, that she will not give her father all her love, but will love her husband, too, should she marry, which is quite unnatural, but simply says that she cannot express her love in words, but hopes that her actions will prove it. Goneril and Regan remark that Cordelia's answer is not an answer, and that the father cannot meekly accept such indifference— so that what is wanting in shakespeare i e the explanation of lear's anger which caused him to disinherit his youngest daughter exists in the old drama lear is annoyed by the failure of his scheme and the poisonous words of his eldest daughters irritate him still more after the division of the kingdom between the elder daughters there follows in the older drama a scene between cordelia and the king of gaul setting forth instead of the colorless cordelia of shakespeare a very definite and attractive character of the truthful tender and self-sacrificing youngest daughter while cordelia without grieving that she has been deprived of a portion of the heritage sits sorrowing at having lost her father's love and looking forward to earn her bread by her labor there comes the king of gaul who in the disguise of a pilgrim desires to choose a bride from among lear's daughters he asks cordelia why she is sad she tells him the cause of her grief the king of gaul still in the guise of a pilgrim falls in love with her and offers to arrange a marriage for her with the king of gaul but she says she will marry only a man whom she loves then the pilgrim still disguised offers her his hand and heart and cordelia confesses she loves the pilgrim and consents to marry him notwithstanding the poverty that awaits her then the pilgrim discloses to her that it is he who is the king of gaul and cordelia marries him instead of this scene lear according to shakespeare offers cordelia's two suitors to take her without dowry and one cynically refuses while the other one does not know why accepts her after this in the old drama as in shakespeare's lear undergoes the insults of goneril into whose house he has removed but he bears these insults in a very different way from that represented by shakespeare he feels that by his conduct toward cordelia he has deserved this and humbly submits As in Shakespeare's drama, so also in the older drama, the courtier's perilous, Kent, who had interceded for Cordelia and was therefore banished, comes to Lear and assures him of his love, but under no disguise, but simply as a faithful old servant, who does not abandon his king in a moment of need. Lear tells him what, according to Shakespeare, he tells Cordelia in the last scene, that if the daughters whom he has benefited hate him, a retainer to whom he has done no good cannot love him." But Perilous, Kent, assures the king of his love toward him, and Lear, pacified, goes on to Regan. In the older drama there are no tempests, nor tearing out of gray hairs, but there is the weakened and humbled old man, Lear, overpowered with grief, and banished by his other daughter also, who even wishes to kill him. Turned out by his elder daughters, Lear, according to the older drama, as a last resource, goes with Perillus to Cordelia instead of the unnatural banishment of lear during the tempest and his roaming about the heath lear with perilous in the older drama during their journey to france very naturally reach the last degree of destitution sell their clothes in order to pay for their crossing over the sea and in the attire of fishermen exhausted by cold and hunger approach cordelia's house Here again, instead of the unnatural combined ravings of the fool, Lear, and Edgar, as represented by Shakespeare, there follows in the older drama a natural scene of reunion between the daughter and the father. Cordelia, who notwithstanding her happiness, has all the time been grieving about her father and praying to God to forgive her sisters who had done him so much wrong, meets her father in his extreme want, and wishes immediately to disclose herself to him, but her husband advises her not to do this in order not to agitate her weak father. She accepts the counsel and takes Lear into her house without disclosing herself to him, and nurses him. Lear gradually revives, and then the daughter asks him who he is and how he lived formerly. If from the first, says Lear, I should relate the cause, I would make a heart of adamant to weep, and thou, poor soul, kind-hearted as thou art, dost weep already ere I do begin. Cordelia, for God's love tell it, and when you have done, I'll tell the reason why I weep so soon." and lear relates all he has suffered from his elder daughters and says that now he wishes to find shelter with a child who would be in the right even were she to condemn him to death if however he says she will receive me with love it will be god's and her work and not my merit to this cordelia says oh i know for certain that thy daughter will lovingly receive thee how canst thou know this without knowing her says lear i know says cordelia because not far from here I had a father who acted toward me as badly as thou hast acted toward her. Yet if I were only to see his white head, I would creep to meet him on my knees. No, this cannot be, says Lear, for there are no children in the world so cruel as mine. Do not condemn all for the sins of some, says Cordelia, and falls on her knees. Look here, dear father, she says. Look on me. I am thy loving daughter." the father recognizes her and says it is not for thee but for me to beg thy pardon on my knees for all my sins toward thee is there anything approaching this exquisite scene in shakespeare's drama however strange this opinion may seem to the worshippers of shakespeare yet the whole of this old drama is incomparably and in every respect superior to shakespeare's adaptation it is so first because it has not got the utterly superfluous characters of the villain edmund and unlifelike gloucester and edgar who only distract one's attention secondly because it has not got the completely false effects of lear running about the heath his conversations with the fool and all these impossible disguises failures to recognize and accumulated deaths and above all because in this drama there is the simple natural and deeply touching character of lear and the yet more touching and clearly defined character of cordelia both absent in shakespeare therefore there is in the older drama instead of shakespeare's long drawn scene of lear's interview with cordelia and of cordelia's unnecessary murder the exquisite scene of the interview between lear and cordelia unequalled by any in all shakespeare's dramas the old drama also terminates more naturally and in more accordance with the moral demands of the spectator than does shakespeare's namely by the king of gauls conquering the husbands of the elder sisters and cordelia instead of being killed restoring lear to his former position thus it is in the drama we are examining which shakespeare has borrowed from the drama king lear so it is also with othello taken from an italian romance the same also with the famous hamlet the same with antony brutus cleopatra shylock richard and all shakespeare's characters all taken from antecedent work shakespeare while profiting by characters already given in preceding dramas or romances chronicles or plutarch's lives not only fails to render them more truthful and vivid as his eulogists affirm but on the contrary always weakens them and often completely destroys them as with lear compelling his characters to commit actions unnatural to them and above all to utter speeches natural neither to them nor to any one whatever thus in othello although it is perhaps i will not say the best but the least bad and the least encumbered by pompous volubility the characters of othello iago cassio amelia according to shakespeare are much less natural and lifelike than in the italian romance shakespeare's othello suffers from epilepsy of which he has an attack on the stage moreover in shakespeare's version desdemona's murder is preceded by the strange vow of the kneeling othello othello according to shakespeare is a negro and not a moor all this is erratic inflated unnatural and violates the unity of the character all this is absent in the romance in that romance the reasons for othello's jealousy are represented more naturally than in shakespeare in the romance cassio knowing whose the handkerchief is goes to desdemona to return it but approaching the back door of desdemona's house sees othello and flies from him Othello perceives the escaping Cassio, and this, more than anything, confirms his suspicions. Shakespeare has not got this, and yet this casual incident explains Othello's jealousy more than anything else. With Shakespeare, this jealousy is founded entirely on Iago's persistent successful machinations and treacherous words which Othello blindly believes othello's monologue over the sleeping desdemona about his desiring her when killed to look as she is alive about his going to love her even dead and now wishing to smell her balmy breath etc is utterly impossible a man who is preparing for the murder of a beloved being does not utter such phrases still less after committing the murder would he speak about the necessity of an eclipse of sun and moon and of the globe yawning nor can he negro though he may be address devils inviting them to burn him in hot sulphur and so forth lastly however effective may be the suicide absent in the romance it completely destroys the conception of his clearly defined character if he indeed suffered from grief and remorse he would not intending to kill himself pronounce phrases about his own services about the pearl and about his eyes dropping tears as fast as the arabian trees their medicinal gum and yet less about the turks beating an italian and how he othello smote him thus so that notwithstanding the powerful expression of emotion in othello when under the influence of iago's hints jealousy rises in him and again in his scenes with desdemona one's conception of othello's character is constantly infringed by his false pathos and the unnatural speeches he pronounces so it is with the chief character, Othello, but notwithstanding its alteration and the disadvantageous features which it is made thereby to present in comparison with the character from which it was taken in the romance, this character still remains a character, but all the other personages are completely spoiled by Shakespeare. Iago, according to Shakespeare, is an unmitigated villain, deceiver, and thief, a robber who robs Rodrigo and always succeeds even in his most impossible designs, and therefore is a person quite apart from real life. In Shakespeare, the motive of his villainy is, first, that Othello did not give him the post he desired, secondly, that he suspects Othello of an intrigue with his wife, and thirdly, as he says, he feels a strange kind of love for Desdemona. There are many motives, but they are all vague. Whereas in the romance there is but one simple and clear motive, Iago's passionate love for Desdemona, transmitted into hatred toward her and Othello after she had preferred the Moor to him and resolutely repulsed him. Yet more unnatural is the utterly unnecessary Rodrigo, whom Iago deceives and robs, promising him Desdemona's love, and whom he forces to fulfill all he commands, to intoxicate Cassio, provoke, and then kill Cassio. Emilia, who says anything it may occur to the author to put into her mouth, has not even the slightest semblance of a live character. But Falstaff, the wonderful Falstaff, Shakespeare's eulogists will say, of him at all events one cannot say that he is not a living character, or that having been taken from the comedy of an unknown author, it has been weakened. Falstaff, like all Shakespeare's characters, was taken from a drama or comedy by an unknown author, written on a really living person, Sir John Oldcastle, who had been the friend of some duke this old castle had once been convicted of heresy but had been saved by his friend the duke but afterward he was condemned and burned at the stake for his religious beliefs which did not conform with catholicism it was on this same Old Castle that an anonymous author, in order to please the Catholic public, wrote a comedy or drama ridiculing this martyr for his faith and representing him as a good-for-nothing man, the boon-companion of the duke, and it is from this comedy that Shakespeare borrowed not only the character of Falstaff, but also his own ironical attitude toward it. In Shakespeare's first works, when this character appeared, it was frankly called Oldcastle. but later, in Elizabeth's time, when Protestantism again triumphed, it was awkward to bring out with mockery a martyr in the strife with catholicism and besides oldcastle's relatives had protested and shakespeare accordingly altered the name of oldcastle to that of falstaff also a historical figure known for having fled from the field of the battle of agincourt falstaff is indeed quite a natural and typical character but then it is perhaps the only natural and typical character depicted by shakespeare And this character is natural and typical because, of all Shakespeare's characters, it alone speaks a language proper to itself. And it speaks thus because it speaks in that same Shakespearean language full of mirthless jokes and unamusing puns, which, being unnatural to all Shakespeare's other characters, is quite in harmony with the boastful, distorted, and depraved character of the drunken Falstaff. For this reason alone does this figure truly represent a definite character. Unfortunately, the artistic effect of this character is spoilt by the fact that it is so repulsive by its gluttony, drunkenness, debauchery, rascality, deceit, and cowardice that it is difficult to share the feeling of gay humor with which the author treats it. Thus it is with Falstaff. But in none of Shakespeare's figures is his, I will not say, incapacity to give, but utter indifference to giving his personages a typical character so strikingly manifest as in Hamlet. And in connection with none of Shakespeare's works do we see so strikingly displayed that blind worship of Shakespeare, that unreasoning state of hypnotism owing to which the mere thought even is not admitted that any of Shakespeare's productions can be wanting in genius, or that any of the principal personages in his dramas can fail to be the expression of a new and deeply conceived character. Shakespeare takes on an old story, not bad in its way, relating avec quel rusamlet qui depuis fut rue de denmark vengea la mort de son père Howardin, oquis par fengon son frere et autre occurrence de son histoire, or a drama which was written on this theme fifteen years before him on this subject he writes his own drama introducing quite inappropriately as indeed he always does into the mouth of the principal person all those thoughts of his own which appeared to him worthy of attention and putting into the mouth of his hero these thoughts about life the grave digger, about death to be or not to be the same which are expressed in his sixty-sixth sonnet about the theatre about women he is utterly unconcerned as to the circumstances under which these words are said and it naturally turns out that the person expressing all these thoughts is a mere phonograph of shakespeare without character whose actions and words do not agree in the old legend hamlet's personality is quite comprehensible he is indignant at his mother's and uncle's deeds and wishes to revenge himself upon them but is afraid his uncle may kill him as he had killed his father therefore he simulates insanity desiring to bide his time and observe all that goes on in the palace meanwhile his uncle and mother being afraid of him wish to test whether he is feigning or is really mad and send him to a girl whom he loves he persists then sees his mother in private kills a courtier who was eavesdropping and convicts his mother of her sin afterward he is sent to england but intercepts letters and returning from england takes revenge of his enemies burning them all all this is comprehensible and flows from hamlet's character and position but shakespeare putting into hamlet's mouth speeches which he himself wishes to express and making him commit actions which are necessary to the author in order to produce scenic effects destroys all that constitutes the character of hamlet and of the legend during the whole of the drama hamlet is doing not what he would really wish to do but what is necessary for the author's plan one moment he is awestruck at his father's ghost another moment he begins to chaff it calling it old mole one moment he loves ophelia another moment he teases her and so forth there is no possibility of finding any explanation whatever of Hamlet's actions or words, and therefore no possibility of attributing any character to him. But as it is recognized that Shakespeare the genius cannot write anything bad, therefore learned people use all the power of their minds to find extraordinary beauties in what is an obvious and crying failure, demonstrated with especial vividness in Hamlet, where the principal figure has no character whatever and lo profound critics declare that in this drama in the person of hamlet is expressed singularly powerful perfectly novel and deep personality existing in this person having no character and that precisely in this absence of character consists the genius of creating a deeply conceived character having decided this learned critics write volumes upon volumes so that the praise and explanation of the greatness and importance of the representation of the character of a man who has no character form in volume a library it is true that some of the critics timidly express the idea that there is something strange in this figure that hamlet is an unsolved riddle but no one has the courage to say as in hans andersen's story that the king is naked i e that it is as clear as day that shakespeare did not succeed and did not even wish to give any character to hamlet did not even understand that this was necessary and learned critics continue to investigate and extol this puzzling production which reminds one of the famous stone with an inscription which pickwick found near a cottage doorstep and which divided the scientific world into two hostile camps so that neither do the characters of lear nor othello nor falstaff nor yet hamlet in any way confirm the existing opinion that shakespeare's power consists in the delineation of character if in Shakespeare's dramas one does meet figures having certain characteristic features, for the most part secondary figures, such as Polonius in Hamlet and Portia in The Merchant of Venice, these few lifelike characters among five hundred or more other secondary figures, with the complete absence of character in the principal figures, do not at all prove that the merit of Shakespeare's dramas consists in the expression of character that a great talent for depicting character is attributed to shakespeare arises from his actually possessing a peculiarity which for superficial observers and in the play of good actors may appear to be the capacity of depicting character this peculiarity consists in the capacity of representative scenes expressing the play of emotion however unnatural the positions may be in which he places his characters however improper to them the language which he makes them speak however featureless they are the very play of emotion its increase and alteration and the combination of many contrary feelings as expressed correctly and powerfully in some of shakespeare's scenes and in the play of good actors evokes even if only for a time sympathy with the persons represented shakespeare himself an actor and an intelligent man knew how to express by the means not only of speech but of exclamation gesture and the repetition of words states of mind and developments or changes of feeling taking place in the persons represented so that in many instances shakespeare's characters instead of speaking merely make an exclamation or weep or in the middle of a monologue by means of gestures demonstrate the pain of their position just as lear asks some one to unbutton him or in moments of great agitation repeat a question several times or several times demand the repetition of a word which has particularly struck them as do othello macduff cleopatra and others such clever methods of expressing the development of feeling giving good actors the possibility of demonstrating their powers were and are often mistaken by many critics for the expression of character but however strongly the play of feeling may be expressed in one scene a single scene cannot give the character of a figure when this figure after a correct exclamation or gesture begins in a language not its own at the author's arbitrary will, to volubly utter words which are neither necessary nor in harmony with its character. End of chapter 4